You're listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM in New Haven. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging deep into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. My show today is The State of Hunger in New Haven, Connecticut, and my guests are Kimberly Hart, who's a member of the New Haven Food Policy Council and Mothers for Justice. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. And Alicia Santilli, who's the Director of CARE, the Community Alliance for Research and Engagement. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Tegan. And we also have Billy Bromage with us. He has a master's degree in social work and is a community organizer with the Program for Recovery and Community Health, as well as the Connecticut Mental Health Center. Both Kim and Alicia are part of the New Haven Food Policy Council, and Billy does some, a lot of work in partnership with the Food Policy Council. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. For full full disclosure, for many years I served on the New Haven Food Policy Council with these three individuals, and I'm happy to welcome them to the table underground to discuss the state of hunger in the city of New Haven, Connecticut. Most recently, our guests worked with numerous city and community partners to draft a report compiling vital information from many sources to get a clearer picture of who in our city is going hungry, where they're located, what the causes are, and what the potential solutions are. Hunger is a symptom of poverty, so the solutions to ending it cannot be just about Band-Aid fixes such as emergency food pantries and soup kitchens. Each of our guests brings a different perspective to this work, and we will discuss both the immediate resources that are needed so people are not going hungry, as well as their perspectives on addressing the longer-term solutions to ending hunger and poverty. Kim, I'd like to start with you because I think it's really important to root these conversations in the real-world experiences for people who are struggling with food insecurity or hunger as kind of a common way of explaining what that means. So I know that you have been on disability and Mm -hmm. have received food assistance, SNAP Mm -hmm. food assistance. And I'm wondering, can you tell us, has that assistance been enough for you and your teenage son? No, it has not. Um, When the federal government decided in 2013 to cut SNAP benefits, um, it affected me greatly, and I was going to food pantries, not all the time, just when I was in a pinch, you know, so like maybe once every three or four months or something, you know, I would go and get, get some stuff. But when they cut my SNAP benefits in 2013, um, I found that I had to go to the food pantries more often, and um, it became a headache um, because you know I have to I had to get out get there early in order to get the good stuff and what I mean by the good stuff is like if they're giving out whole chickens you know if they only have say 35 40 whole chickens well I want to be in that group to get the whole chickens or the the fresh eggs or the um, the milk, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, you know, and stuff. So, so yeah. So it was it was quite a learning experience because I had to learn the ropes. How, so how early did you have to get there? Say the pantry was opening at noon. Well, at least three hours. At least three hours to be, and then I'm not even number one. Mm. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> oh my goodness, you know. So that was. It was, it was very time consuming. Yeah, you know, and um, and were you taking public transportation? I was, together? I was, I was, and and 
I was walking to the ones that I was able to walk to, you know, but, but yeah, but I have taken public transportation. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, but, but I get it, you know, because if you want to get, you know, because at the end, if they open at one, you get there at 1230, you are at the end of the line. And how long is that line? That line is wrapped around the corner. Mm. I mean, it is it is crazy, you know. And the thing of it is, is that I would stand out there, winter, spring, summer, and fall. Mm-hmm. You know, through the rain, through the blazing sun, through the freezing cold. But I did that to to keep from being hungry, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff. So, but now I um. I still like got it mapped out now, you know, and stuff. So like I know where to go, you know, the times that I really have to be there. I know who's giving out what, mm-hmm. you know, and because I have to hit multiple pantries, you know, I find that that they all pretty much are giving up the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if I go to a pantry say the second Monday of the month and they're giving out fresh eggs. Well you I can pretty much guarantee that when I go the third Wednesday to a different pantry, I'm getting fresh eggs. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I, I sort of like have it have it mapped out now and so it's not as and I'm blessed with a car. Oh you have a car so now. I have a car now. That's and, transformational. And it, Oh my God, it is such a lifesaver. I mean, freedom. That that's the when I first started driving, it's the first word that came to my mind. This is so much freedom, you know. And um and yeah, so and I'm grateful for that because I'm, when I say I was blessed with it, I truly was blessed with it. Mm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm happy for you that yes. you have that. How many years did it take you to figure out? this pantry system it well i've been going on a regular basis since 2013 Mm -hmm. the last year is when i finally got it down pat yeah because some of them are once a month some of them are once a week and they're in all different neighborhoods at all different times yes yes they are and like um for instance varick they're open which is at the Varick Amy Church. Right, mm-hmm. right, on Dixon and Charles. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I can walk to that one. Mm-hmm. And they're open every fourth Tuesday of the month. Well, some months have five Tuesdays. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm getting ready to go. I grab my cart or whatever to walk around the Varick, and there's no one there. So that's when I check my phone. And I says, oh, it was last week, mm. you know, and stuff. So, I mean, it takes some finagling. Take, you know, it, it, it takes some some um, some discipline, Yeah, you know, and, and you just have to be focused to know. My son, who was now 15, back in 2013, I can take him to a soup kitchen, you know, and he would come and, you know, and, but now at 15, no, he will not be caught, caught there. And, you know, because it's embarrassing. And I believe me, I get it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's 15 years old, and he doesn't want to be seen going into a, a soup kitchen. Mm. So what I do is I will go to the soup kitchens during the day, and I often frequent the community soup kitchen on Broadway. And so this way, I'm full, and I can get some bread and stuff, you know, after I eat or whatever. And then I can go home and I can prepare him a meal, know that he is full, mm-hmm. you know, from the meal that I prepare from the, from the pantry. And then if there's something left, then I will eat, you know. But this isn't all day, every day. It's just toward the end of, end of the month when my SNAP benefits run out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So are you getting food that's extra food from the soup kitchen or you're saying you're you're using your other benefits and I'm using my other benefits from the pantry and stuff, you know, yeah, because they um, either you can eat in or you can take it with you, but you can't eat Eat in in and and take take it it with you, which that would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That would be tricky, though. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A- absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And please, please keep um, bringing us back to the reality of what this is for people through this conversation in absolutely. terms of, your, you know, your own perspective of what absolutely. that is. So, okay. so part of the work that you all have been doing is talking to people like Kim and people who are have are hungry in New Haven but maybe have very different circumstances than Kim and trying to gather this information and Alicia you led this current effort to put together this report called the State of Hunger in New Haven Connecticut with many community partners and I'm wondering if you can tell us kind of why now and what is this report showing us that we didn't know before sure um so first and foremost stories like Kim's are so important to hear what our own community members are experiencing in New Haven and um, what their day-to-day life is like in accessing food. And many of us working on food insecurity issues know a lot of these stories. Um, But we also have what's really important to go along with the stories is data. Mm -hmm. Um, And... um, we have a lot of data in New Haven, and about a year ago, Billy and I were meeting um, just to kind of catch up, and uh, Billy brought up this idea, you know, there's a lot of data about food insecurity in our community, but we don't really have a report on hunger. Um, and so we just kind of took that idea and ran. Um, so we have the CARE survey, which um, is a triennial health survey that we do in the six low-income neighborhoods in New Haven, and we do ask about food insecurity. Um there uh, was another uh, small survey that had been done at, through Southern Connecticut State University at um, the mobile pantries over the summer. Um, there were, was um, another data collection effort that had come out of the city of New Haven over last summer. So there was all these numbers that were sort of flowing, floating around, but no cohesive story about like what really is going on in New Haven related to hunger. Right. So um, you have one that's showing one neighborhood, another another neighborhood. One is like just low-income people, one might be just people right. using soup kitchens, mm-hmm. and so trying to put it together to make sense. Right, and to, and to tell a story. Right. That was a really important component of, of the committee. The committee really wanted to be able to tell the story of hunger in New Haven. Um, so we really just called over all of that data over many months. Um, and then there's other data, like the, the food bank, the Connecticut Food Bank has tons of data about the amount of food that they distribute, um, which is amazing. And I don't think a lot of people know that. So letting which people why know. the eggs at one yes. pantry are the same as the eggs at the next Absolutely. one because they're all getting that from yes. the same right. exactly. food bank. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, so there's three components to the report. One is kind of outlining the problem of New Haven. One is the other, I think a really important part of the story is all the amazing work that is already being done in New Haven. We have a network of almost 70 food pantries and soup kitchens in New Haven um, that are mostly run by volunteers. Mm. There are some paid staff, but very few. Um, so we have enormous volunteer effort, like really meeting the challenge and, and trying to make a difference. Um, and then the last part of the port report is really offering some solutions that some really specific solutions that the city could take on. Um, so some of the problems that we see in New Haven is that 22% of residents are food insecure. So that's about one in five. That's across New Haven. When we look at our low income neighborhoods, there are six neighborhoods that are considered the quote unquote low income neighborhoods in New Haven. That number goes up to one in three. Um, and then within those low-income neighborhoods, if we look just at the Hispanic and Latino population, 50% of Hispanic and Latino folks are food insecure. Um, so really alarming rates of food insecurity. Um, like I mentioned, there's a lot of people that are already coming together to solve, um, try and solve the issue, but it's still persistent. Even with that 70, uh, that network of almost 70 food pantries and soup kitchens, we're still, we, we still have a huge hunger problem. Um, and so some of the solutions that we suggest to the city of New Haven, uh, first and foremost, we need to make sure that people have livable wages because um, this mm. comes down to poverty. And um, if families who are working full time still can't afford food, that's that's an issue that we need to be looking mm. at. And the way to break through that is making sure we have livable wages. Um, among those uh, soup kitchens and food pantries, they need to be better supported. They're run primarily by volunteers. I think we could be doing a little bit more to better support them and better network them so that, um, you know, Kim's story of, you know, it taking months, years to figure out which soup kitchen to go to when or which food pantry to go to when and how and that you have to get in line three hours in mm -hmm. advance like that, that it kind of information should be made accessible to people who are mm -hmm. who are struggling. And it's really just word of mouth at this point. Um, and, the, and the food providers don't have the capability because they're so under-resourced to get the word out to right. families. Well, and, and for people to understand, people who have resources and power to understand what it takes to go to a food, right. a food pantry, like three hours beforehand, right. plus an hour on the bus, yeah. plus an hour back on the yeah. bus, right. like maybe multiple buses. So mm -hmm. people think like, oh, someone should just go get a job and go yeah. to work. <laughs> and it's interesting in, you know, if you need to spend like six hours of your day going to one food pantry. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting in this report, the numbers for people who are underemployed were actually higher. The hunger numbers, food insecurity numbers for people who are underemployed were higher than the number for people who are unemployed. And the first thing that it made me think of was, if you're unemployed, you have more time to be able to go right. for six exactly. hours right. to the food pantry. Yeah. But if you are if you do have a part-time job or a job that just doesn't pay you enough, you don't have all those hours That's to right. travel to all the pantries. So you have here 53.9% of people who are underemployed were, um, who are underemployed ha were um, food insecure compared to 41% for people who are mm -hmm. unemployed. That's like a 12% mm -hmm. difference. So it's yeah. extreme. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that issue of time is, is a you know, imagine if you're working two jobs mm. and you can't afford food. How how do you possibly make the time yeah, to get to a food pantry? It's yeah. I imagine it's impossible. Yeah. Billy, do you want to share a little bit of your perspective working in the community on these issues? Sure. Um, so I think 
piggybacking on what Alicia was just saying, and Kim and I are part of a group called the Food Access Working Group, mm-hmm. which is part of the New Haven Food Policy Council. Um, and we've been working a lot more on trying to figure out how to streamline the emergency food system um, so that people that need the help can get it. And one of the conversations we've been having with a lot of the providers um, is that exact thing about the hours, that a lot of the hours um, when the pantries are open or during the day, during the week, um, and some of the ones that have been open, like Loaves and Fishes, that is open on Saturdays, um, every Saturday morning, every mm-hmm. every uh, Saturday, regardless of holiday or whatever, um, has been seeing just astronomical increases in their in their uh, utilization. They've been up over, I think, 300 families or something. I'm not mm-hmm. exactly sure, but somewhere in that range um, every week. So that used to be the third and fourth week of the month, and now they're up there pretty much every week, and a lot of those are new people. So... Um, so I think they're picking up some of the, the people that might not be able to get there during the week or, um, you know, juggling jobs and getting kids at school and, and whatever kids are up to. Um, so they see a lot of people over there. Um, and as Alicia was talking about, they're really um, they're running mostly on volunteers. They have a little mm-hmm. bit of staff and it's mostly volunteers and it's mostly stuff they can pick up at the food bank. So they're really holding it together with, you know, chewing gum and goodwill, basically, <laughs> and doing their best. Um, but it really... The other thing we talk about a lot, and I think um, the report brings that out and a lot of the recommendations bring that out, that this is really um, not the solution that an advanced society should be having for people um, to meet their nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a real big focus for us is that, as you said earlier, taking with the the Band-Aid, it is a Band-Aid and and it's an incredibly important Band-Aid. I'd say it's more of like a a bandage or something that's holding a, you know, something. It's a sling. Yeah, a sling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Holding so it's a little it bit more than a Band-Aid, but it's, sure. and it's really critical. Um, and, but I think that giving the, uh, the bulk of the burden to hold to people who are holding it together with volunteer staffs and with whatever they can get from the food bank um, is really not a responsible way for us to, to think as a community about the way that we're going to deal with people not having enough food. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that a little bit about what are, I mean, I know there's recommendations in here, but kind of how do we transform from a society that is just having people go around to these little emergency food providers at churches to a society that's actually starting getting closer to ending hunger? Right. Um, so with the Food Access Working Group, um, we're working a lot on a few priority areas. Some of them are, like we said, streamlining the emergency food so that people have information, they know where, to, where it is, that people, um, you know, that providers can even share resources with each other so that mm. people, when they show up at the door, are getting everything that they need. Um, working with the Connecticut Food Bank to have mobile pantries um, in places where there might not be enough soup kitchens, so to fill in some gaps, I mean food pantries, so to fill in gaps and things like that. So there's that sort of immediate need kind of stuff. Which um, is, I mean, that's actually a really important thing. It's still, you know, a, a smaller fix, but... But there was no coordination of this. It was like anybody, any church or community group that wanted to start a pantry was doing it. They might not know, oh, everybody's having pantries on the fourth Wednesday of the month, but nobody's doing it on the second and third Wednesday. Mm. Or, so you guys are helping these providers talk to each other right. and coordinate better. That's right. And um, get the information And out. people are even doing um, research on where they are, and the food bank's doing a little bit more of that, exactly, so that if there's a little bit more coverage throughout the week and that kind of thing. Um, and then we've started to focus, I think, a little bit more on um, sort of the, the mid-level advocacy level of things, like working on school food, for example, really trying to make sure that the schools where a lot of kids are going, and it's a, 
place they go anyway. They're there. Um, there are federal programs where schools can be re fully reimbursed for the meals the kids eat there. Um, that, that those kind of things are maximized. So the city, you know, is it, the New Haven Public Schools um, hasn't really maximized those programs. And so, so we've been doing a lot of advocacy, working with them and also, you know, pressuring them a little bit from the outside, hopefully, to, to move that along and focus a little bit more on that. Um, so there's sort of more of those mid-level things um, while we're also working with people on livable wages and affordable housing and sort of getting ourselves involved in some of the more um, core structural issues that are really, um, you know, the longer term yeah, the fixes, longer term thing. Right? So not yeah. so not uh, keeping keeping our eye on that while we're also dealing with the things that immediately are affecting people. Um, and another thing that we're working on, uh, you know, is is the communication piece. So making sure that people um, are getting the correct information. So starting to work, Alicia and I are starting to do some work with the hospital to try to make sure that they understand when they're referring people that might be experiencing hunger and that's leading or exacerbating a health condition to sort of have the accurate information on where to go so that people know um, where they can get that help. And we're doing some of that at, at Connecticut Mental Health Center too to make sure that if people are hungry that we're, we have the information we need and we're up to date and we've got some special partnerships with like Fish of Greater New Haven and some various organizations that can help us to make sure that um, people are getting food when they need it and when they're coming to a place to look for help that we're not so siloed that people in those places don't know where someone can get help with food if that's what they need even though they might be presenting for a mental health concern or a physical health concern that if food is a part of that problem that they'll know where to right. get it. Can you give us just a little overview of for school food um, kind of the program we have now because we have universal free breakfast and lunch right yes. now and just for people who don't understand what that program is and, and how it's funded and how it works, give people an idea of that. Right. So, um, not you know, without getting into too much specifics, that the schools, um, any kid that wants breakfast or lunch um, at the school that comes in can just grab the, the breakfast on their way to the classroom, the way that most schools do. Um, they can go into the cafeteria and just get in line and, and get the food. Um, and so that's that's all reimbursed. They're two separate programs from the federal government, and those are both you know reimbursed to the school per meal. So they just um, let them know how many kids are, are you know are receiving those meals. Um, and so what I've done the majority of work on is uh, is in the, in the you know the Food Policy Council has done a lot of advocacy around is the summer meals program. And I, I don't know if we want to get into that now, but I could talk a lot about. Sure. That. Well, <laughs> before you jump into that, I just want to explain that the. Our, because of the rate of poverty in the city, we have um, that's why we have universal free yes. breakfast and lunch. So some schools people have like you, some kids pay for lunch, some have reduced lunch or breakfast costs, some have free. And so if a city has, I think over seventy-five or eighty percent of students qualify, or you know meet a certain percentage of uh, above the poverty level, then the city qualifies for just offering universal free breakfast and lunch to all the students regardless of their family's income levels. And our, I guess in this report you show, Alicia, what are the numbers that it went up in New Haven? Yeah, so um, I was just going to highlight that, you know, childhood hunger is a, is a huge issue in New Haven. And for school 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 meal eligibility, um, this past academic year, 2016 to 17, 93.7% of children were eligible for free meals. And this was an increase from 2014 to 15, where it was 93, I'm sorry, 83.8%. So we saw about a 10 point increase, which is huge. Yeah. Um, 
And um, do you have a sense of why that is? Um, I, I don't. Uh, I don't know if Billy has something more to say about that. Mm-hmm. I, they, yeah. 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 I it, can't remember. It had something to do with uh, an increase and then a, a different way that they were figuring it out with the federal government. No, this this includes the actually the eligibility. Oh, okay. The way they they changed. There's two different ways you can uh, formulate right. um, your school um, meal. Uh, rates and um, and so this is actually the same the same formula from 2014 and then 2016. So there's an increase. We're not sure yeah, why. Yeah, it is an, a big increase. And we're not exactly sure yeah. why. Kim, does your son? He goes to a charter school, a public yes. charter school. So yes. is he is he having lunch at school and yes. breakfast and lunch at school? Yes, he he is he is and um and I'm grateful for that. I'm very grateful. And um I know um a lot of times he's like. A lot of time he's like, um, well, I don't think I'm gonna, you know, eat breakfast at school. I think I want something here. How but, come? You know, because well, he says that he doesn't like it. Yeah. You know, and 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 so, but most mornings we don't have anything, you know, because like I, breakfast isn't a concern for me, you know, when it comes down to buying groceries and stuff. Um, because I know that he gets it at in, school, at school, you know, and stuff. So, so yeah. So, um, but but he is, and I just, and I'm so grateful for that. Do you, you know? check with him if he's actually eating it yeah, at school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. You know, and he is, and which which, in the beginning he he wasn't in elementary and middle school, but now he, in high school he is, and I think that's because he just stays hungry because he's he's growing and yeah. big. <laughs> yeah, but um. But you know, um, he is now eating salads, and when before he would he would take it off of the lettuce and tomato on mm-hmm. a sandwich. He would take it off. He says, "Mine has salad on it. I don't want it." <laughs> you know. But now he's like, "Can you buy some salad mix?" I'm like, Ooh. "Wow!" Yeah. You know, and that's because I guess they're serving it in school. Yeah, they have a salad bar in the school. Yeah. My kids like yeah. the salad, too, yeah. and yeah. there's some beans and stuff. Yeah. So it, yeah. it is good they're getting some yeah. fresh food. But, yeah. yeah, my kids like some of the stuff and don't like yeah. some of the yeah. stuff. Right. So it depends right. on yeah. what, it, what yeah. they're serving. Yeah. So, And so, Billy, you were talking about the summer meals and, and supper programs. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so the, the summer meals um, came out from, uh, you know, our organizing. So the summer meals is a program, obviously, to fill the gap um, during the summer um, when kids that are getting food during school from the breakfast and lunch programs um, can then get, get meals during the summertime. Um, the majority of the sites uh, where people can get food is at, the, um, or at schools, the summer school program um, that, that the city runs. Um, and th- I should mention that the summer meals is open to anyone that's 18 and under. Um, there's no checking your identification or anything like that. So if a student just, or if a young person just walks up and says, I'd like a meal, you can get that meal. Um, we have other sites around the city where there's school parks, uh, sorry, parks, um, where they have camps, all kinds of different things, all the parks and rec, um, all, the, all the parks and rec um, has it available for the kids that are there in their camps. Um, but what we were finding when we started getting, organizing with the school through the Food Policy Council was, um, the, the communication just wasn't great, and they maybe weren't at the right sites. Um, one of um, uh, an, another activist um, that was working with Kim in the Witnesses to mm-hmm. Hunger program, Miss Pat, um, mm-hmm. was at one of our meetings, and she lives in Q Terrace, and she said, you know, the thing about it in Q Terrace is when the 
the the summer truck comes. It comes right. It comes right before all the kids come home from camp, and then it leaves, and they all come home from camp looking for something to eat. Mm. And it's so right. So the timing was the off. The timing was, was off. And so it's just enough for us in that meeting to say, "Wait a second, that this is something we can at least go have a meeting right. with with the public schools and talk about. This is a, this is a gap right here. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, and as we you know got more into that, it was clear that there were a lot of communication gaps, and that sighting wasn't done, especially for the mobile." Um, you know, suppers and things where they bring out the the, 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 the buses truck, yeah. and the trucks. Um, it just wasn't in places where, um, you know, people were naturally going to, to in, in the evenings to go to the park or whatever. Um, so we did a lot of work helping with that. Um, and through that, uh, the city was able to apply for a grant and got an, an extra two school buses. So they expanded out the supper program. Um, and then the following year, the school invested some money and, and rented a couple more school buses. So they really expanded the supper program. So I should say that they, you can get breakfast, uh, lunch, or supper through um, the summer meals program, and it runs, uh, you know, from about a week after school's over until uh, about a week before school starts again. So it covers the summer um, pretty well. Um, part of the issue last year, which we're going to have to work on again this year, which is an opportunity for us to advocate and, and, and work on communication, is the, sup- the summer school program was shortened mm-hmm. um, and there wasn't transportation to a lot of the sites. So the, a lot of the kids um, that had previously gotten meals through the summer schools um, weren't able to access them this year and the numbers went, went way down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something we're in the process right now of working with the Board of Ed and the Mayor's Office and the New Haven Public School leadership to try to make sure that those kinds of things don't happen again so that lots of kids aren't left out and their families aren't mm. scrambling to get enough food for them. And are you also working on kind of some improvements to the during the year school program just to, in terms of increasing numbers or is that not as much part of that work? Um, it hasn't been for breakfast and lunch really, um, but we've been working we've been working on and not making a ton of progress, frankly, on the supper program. So there's another federal program um, related to all these other programs where schools can be reimbursed for supper if it's attached to an after-school program, Mm -hmm. so a qualified after-school program, which the majority of schools have in New Haven. Um, So what we've been advocating for is for, um, you know, the, the, the leadership at New Haven Public Schools to work with principals to encourage them to think about um, food insecurity and, and having their students go home at night um, if they want to with a, with a um, full stomach or mm. close to it, I guess maybe for the teenagers, for <laughs> their first of their two yeah. suppers. Can be <laughs> <in their stomach. laughs> um, but, but the idea that that, that, that that help can be there and that if when the federal government is able to reimburse fully for that, that that's something that the schools are, are taking on and are, are being a partner in it because it's very part of their system and it's we're trying to frame it as, as a little bit more of a, a responsibility that they can take on a responsibility to the whole child yeah because I know that if it was offered to to um, Arthur if it was offered to you know uh, a, su- yeah. uh, a summer I mean uh, a supper program because he is involved in three different sports so he doesn't get home sometimes it's 7 730. You know, and instead of them giving him graham crackers and a four-ounce juice, juice, yeah. you know, it'd be nice if they, you know, and, and if they would offer him you something, know, something a little something more, something more, more sustainable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, and I'm sure that I'm not the only one who who would 
agree with that. Yeah, and the know? kids are hungry after absolutely. school. They may have eaten at 11, 30, or 12. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, one thing we have to keep our eyes open about is that this program is funded through the Farm Bill, which mm. is the largest piece of legislation in this country right. in terms of the amount of money that is attached to it. And uh, it comes up for renewal every five years, and mm. it's coming up this coming year. And um, as with most of the things that the Republicans are doing, they're they're going to be they're trying to slash mm. these programs. So nice. f- SNAP, food assistance, WIC, this the school food program. Um, so I feel like a lot of people that I've been talking to are just focused on trying to hold on to the the small gains that have been made mm-hmm. over the years, mm-hmm. and not even advocating to address the you know for more funding which we need, but even just to hold on to the funding that we have. Yeah. That I'm, I know you all are paying attention to that. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a little bit about racial disparities. <laughs> Bless you. Around racial disparities around um, hunger. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah. So um, as I uh, mentioned earlier, um, in our six low-income neighborhoods, there's um, there's a lot of disparity. Uh, most of those neighborhoods are made up of African-American and Latino communities. Um, and among the Latinos in those six low-income neighborhoods, 50% are going hungry. Um, so that's really concerning. And then across the, in those six, six low-income neighborhoods, it's, it's actually relatively equitable, about 30% for the other, other races that, that we track. But overall, we just see a huge disparity in not just hunger, but any um, kind of social issues uh, in New Haven, they impact black and African-American and Latino communities at much higher rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so something else that we look at and what we're interested in, one of the things we're interested in at CARE is how food impacts health. Um, and we see some other huge disparities when it comes to health and, um, and racial and ethnic makeup. Um, so again, our Hispanic and Latino communities, our African American communities, are suffering at much higher rates from things like different chronic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, overweight, o- obesity. So across the board, no matter what social or health issue we're looking at, it's it's impacting our communities of color mm-hmm. um, most dramatically. So one thing, um, Alicia has been a, a real leader in our conversations on. Um, data being a source of sort of activism, like a starting point for activism, both having it to be able to bring it to policymakers and say, here's some data involved, Mm -hmm. but also looking at the data um, and not saying, you know, we look at data and we see, well, there's with with people of color, there's higher rates of health problems. There's higher rates of, of food insecurity. I think it's, it's always challenging ourselves in those moments not to say, oh, well, we're used to that. That's kind of how that right. is in our society. And it's, it's really looking at the numbers and not accepting that, well, of course, the, the communities of color have higher rates of food insecurity. Of course, there's more <laughs> diabetes or whatever it is. And looking at it and saying that's not a place we're going to start and to look at it um, without thinking about it as something that we're used to, you know, and really think, not looking at, not getting complacent about well, that. Well, and even beyond that, not thinking of it as that it's an accident, right? Like right. there is historical directed policy that created poverty for people of color, not letting people buy homes, not letting people benefit from government uh, employment programs, not letting, you know, all kinds of overt and, Absolutely. and, uh, you know, maybe not as overt racism um, and classism that have created, there's redlining with housing. So 
our neighborhoods that are impoverished are not because people didn't try to work hard or because people mm -hmm. were lazy. It's because there were policies, yeah, intentional absolutely. policies that have gone on for generations that have created that circumstance. And so that's actually exactly what I was going to ask you to speak about right now is kind of on this kind of larger systemic level when you're looking at how do we look at ending poverty or undoing these things that have been institutionalized, kind of what are some of the conversations that you're having in the city? Who are you talking to about these issues around kind of housing issues, poverty issues to start to get to the root of why we have this poverty, why we have hunger in these neighborhoods and communities? I don't mean you have to have the answers, but I'm curious about like, right. who are you talking with about this and what are you trying to work on? I'll say just from a health perspective, because that's mostly my lens, um, I think one encouraging thing um, and, and something we need to kind of keep the pressure on about um, is when the Affordable Care Act went into effect, um, it uh, really put a lot more attention on social determinants of health. And so we're fine, which means um, these issues that we see around um, inequities related to health, um, whether it's heart disease, um, diabetes, um, high blood pressure, uh, they're rooted in structural social issues such as lack of access to good food, lack of access to affordable housing, lack of access to good jobs lack of access to education. Mm -hmm. um, and that's obviously something we deal with here in New Haven. Um, <clears throat> so um, the hospitals are sort of been forced to kind of come along um, and not just focus on health issues, um, but start looking at the social determinants of health, what happens to a person once you send them out the door of the hospital or the health clinic, where are they going? And um, what other challenges are they facing in life um, that are not allowing them to be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we need to continue putting pressure on our hospital, not just mm -hmm. in terms of patient care, but as one of the biggest institutions in our community, we're a pretty small city and the hospital is quite a behemoth institution. <coughs> um, so continuing to put the pressure on the hospital. Um, so that's, that's one conversation that's going on in the city what right now. What would you like to see them doing? Like if they were doing a better job, what would that, what do you think that would look like? Um, uh, more focus on what we call in public health, like upstream issues. So making sure people have access to better coordinating services for mm -hmm. patients, not just looking at the medical model, but looking at, at the other pieces that intersect with the medical model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one just to related sort of to the hospital and to, to that, to the health professions. Um, I know that we've been working with and advising different people in the medical school, and we work certainly in the Department of Psychiatry on training doctors and uh, psychiatrists, various types of doctors. And a lot of it, this is coming from the, the med students themselves and the residents talking about really wanting to have more of an understanding about the social determinants of health and the, some of the structural factors and having being able to have conversations as part of their curriculum on how do these things impact what they're seeing when they're in, in the clinical setting. Um, so providing them with support from um, people from the community that can educate them on some of the effects of, of racism, of um, poverty, of policy, and having those conversations in their classroom and giving them the time to think about it, how in practice they might be able to be both aware of it so that they're an ally for their patient when they're in the room with them, um, but also being aware of it as a citizen of their community so that they're able to 
you know, in some cases, leverage their their power that they might have as as a, as a health professional to be able to move their system or move things that are going on in their community towards a more just solution. And and some of that has to do with food, and some of that has to do with some of the other upstream effects. Mm-hmm. Have you felt that doctors or the doctors in training have been receptive to that kind of perspective about not just only looking at like who's coming in with heart disease, but kind of what is their environment and why is that environment there? Are they open to that? I, I think so. I, I've, you know, I, I know within this is our, this will be our fourth year in the Department of Psychiatry doing a training and um, a lot of people f- um, that are people, leaders in the community in various ways, not related to psychiatry or mental health are uh, are part of it, and I think the residents each year get a little bit more tuned into it. And I think the residents themselves are, you know, really asking for this kind of thing. So I think that it's it's Good. much more part of what they're doing. I think a lot of the med students, you'll run across them, and they'll be sending emails like, "Oh, I heard about what you guys are doing with the Food Policy Council. Can you come in and talk to us about this that we're talking about in the classroom, or can you?" Um, speak to a class about about this or a breakout of, of, a, of a medical school group that wants to think more about food security and how they might implement it in practice. So I think it's, particularly among students, it's really starting to resonate a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to, you know, put you on the spot in terms of the kind of working on these how are you fixing the whole world kind of questions. <laughs> but, but, I mean, because I know that just dealing with stuff like trying to coordinate food pantries, the amount of work that it takes mm. just to get people to tell you when is their food pantry open, what are they offering, how many hours, what's the address, who's the contact person, like just that alone is an enormous effort, right? Trying to get a supper program, how many years have you been trying to get a supper program right. during the school year, even when we have a grant for it? So I get like this is the challenge about kind of how much work it takes just to keep the basic services that we need for emergency solutions going. Um, And I'm just sort of curious, as I've sort of stepped out of this kind of political organizing part of it over the past year to start this show, I'm kind of curious if you have been able to be involved in in any other conversations, um, which are always hard, those those getting people out of kind of the day-to-day kind of crisis management things that they're doing to think about these broader issues. And I know there's a desire across departments to do that. Have there been any conversations or what would you, if there haven't, kind of what would you like to see as a next step in terms of addressing those things? I guess I I would say um, at at the Food Policy Council, we've had much more intentional discussion around livable wages. And I think Kim has been a big voice in that. Um, I don't, I don't know that we've gone much beyond that, but even having the internal dialogue um, is, um, you know, is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think this administration is pretty progressive in terms of um, Tony Harp's background and experience. Who's and a, our mayor, Tony our mayor. Harp of New Haven? Yeah. Um, uh, and I think there might be some opportunities um, yeah. to yeah. have some more intentional conversations but it's hard because it's hard to step out of just like the day-to-day food work and we know it's linked to these other bigger social issues but as you said you know we're kind of mired in the day-to-day a lot of us just do this like in addition to our regular jobs or just as volunteers yeah yeah um so so, kim kim what did some of those conversations look like and well i am um, um, apart from being part of the, of the Food Policy Council and the Food Access Working Group, I am also um, a member of Witnesses to Hunger, 
which is out of um, Drexel University in Philadelphia. And we are trying to reignite our New Haven chapter. And What is Witnesses to Hunger? Well, Witnesses to Hunger, it, it is a, a grassroots group of people who, are, who tell their stories through photos, you know, and, um, and it started off in 2008, um, and the pilot was, you know, the, 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 the food insecurity aspect. Mm-hmm. But now that, that we, are, we are witnesses to hunger, we are hungry for a livable, a livable wage job. Mm. We are hungry for affordable housing. We are hungry for, for racial equity. Mm-hmm. We are hungry for a bite at the apple, you know. And and so we, I am coordinating with with Drexel right now to reignite the New Haven chapter. So um, and we just want people who who are who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and mm-hmm. I can use that phrase. You can, you know, and <laughs> and just want to to be a part of the solution. You know, and, and who have a voice, and you know, just want to say, you know what, enough is enough, and we can't take it anymore because, as we know, there is strength in numbers. Right. So, yeah. what are you wanting people to do when you say activating the chapter? What do you want I, them to I, do? I want people to come to come to our recruitment meeting mm-hmm. and to learn, you know, about what we're doing, and and the the main thing, every group that I'm involved in, including Mothers for Justice, Witnesses to Hunger, New Haven. Food Policy Council, we like to change things legislatively mm-hmm. because we know that that is the only way that that change is going to happen. And I heard this when I was in Middletown that in order to affect change, we have to affect policy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I get that now. You know, sitting around in the park or or at your or at your kitchen table with your girlfriend. And just talking, you know, about, oh, this is wrong and that is wrong. That's not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you we have to get up. We have to talk to our legislatures who, by the way, work for us. Mm-hmm. And once <laughs> we realize that they are working for us and that we have the power to keep them employed, mm-hmm. or we're going to fire them. Once we, once we really realize that, power that we have then that that's when change is going to happen yeah i got to see your witnesses for hunger exhibit a number of years ago here and i think you're underselling the power of it a little because you know part of politics is telling the story of what you're trying to pass with a bill with legislation right and so when people were trying to undermine um government assistance. They told the story of ungrateful welfare moms mm. who were just mooching off the system mm. and all this thing. When in reality, like, that wasn't true, right? right? Like, mm. they were making, first of all, most of the people who are on welfare, government assistance, are mm. white, not mm. people of color, right? right? And right. that, that, so they, they sort of used racism to kind of paint this story of um, poor black moms mm. kind of in the cities mm. just kind of 
taking off the government without going to work, right? right. And so that's a story that yeah. was told, Absolutely. which then affected legislation and affected the money that went into people's pockets right. and the government assistance, the social kind of safety net of our country. And so part of what Witnesses to Hunger is doing is having, are you taking the photos or someone else is taking the photos? We we are taking the photos. Your own photos. Uh, so yeah. you're yeah. taking photos of what originally it was around hunger. So right. what does hunger in your life look like, right? right? right. And finding numbers of people in different communities to take those photos. Right. And so it really personalizes it. Those yeah. photos, you don't have to be able to write the perfect speech about Absolutely. what does hunger look like, right? Absolutely. It's just this photo that yes. captures yes. the reality yeah. of you, your children, what does your mm. food look like? What does your home look like? Right. What do your hands look right. like, right? Like, Absolutely. it's not just about the food. It's about the love. It's about the environment. It's about the trying. Mm -hmm. it's, you see all that in the pictures. And right. so I think it personalizes it. And then what you're saying is that through doing that, there's this organizing piece to, to activate people. And I know that's work that, Billy, you've led around kind of training people to be food mm -hmm. advocates to tell that story and try to influence policy. Absolutely. In that way. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It is by no coincidence that I am an advocate, you know, um, because I my mom was an advocate and I grew up watching her advocate for me and my sister, you know, and I am doing this because of my children, mm -hmm. you know, and I have a 35 year old son who's in Oklahoma City and he and I have two beautiful grandchildren. So I'm doing it for them, you know? I mean, be because a change has got to, it's got to come. It, 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 there has to be a change. Mm -hmm. And as I often say, and I wish I can claim this quote, but you know, but if not me, then who? Yep. And if not now, then, then when? when? Mm -hmm. And if we can all just grasp that, and, and let that be our mantra. And let us wake up every morning with that on our minds. We can, oh boy, we can, we can turn this city upside down. I see Billy smiling. Yeah. As an organizer, he's like, yes. I, I want to just ask you, Kim, so like you have been an activist for a long time. Do you feel that your activism and visibility in your community has inspired other people to get involved? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Especially, I was on News Channel 8, Alicia and I, a couple of weeks ago, and people are coming up to me and say, I seen you on TV, you know, or what can I do, you know? And so, so and that empowers me, and that makes me want to go on even more, mm -hmm. you know. And do you feel and like then, you have ways to loop people in so that they can do something? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If not for nothing, we can we can all sit down and just write letters to our legislatures in mm -hmm. Hartford, or we can call our legislature. Yeah, but absolutely. We just, we just have to get it done. Yeah. So I just want to ask you one final question before we finish, which is that there's a number of people who weren't able to be captured so much through this study, especially people who are immigrants. And I'm wondering if you can just speak to that um, before we finish up. Yeah. So um, a 
as we were looking at our data and this issue of 50% of Latino Hispanic communities in our low-income neighborhoods being food insecure, um, we started thinking about like, you know, why is that number so high? What's going on? And we don't we don't have data to support what we think it is, which is why research is so important. Um, but we have some a lot of anecdotal um, information about why it might be so dramatic. And one issue is that you know, some people, maybe they're undocumented. Um, they might not feel comfortable seeking out services like going to a food pantry or soup kitchen, even though there's no reason for the most part that they can't. Um, they're not eligible for a lot of um, services. Aid, yeah, yeah, the government aid. Um, but it, it raised the question for us, there's probably a lot of undocumented citizens that didn't answer our survey. Um, so maybe it's even higher among undocumented residents, and that's something that we, as a community, should look at a little bit more closely. Uh, another thing that's come up recently is the migration of Puerto Rican folks into our community. Right, um, one of the things that James Kramer at, um, at Loaves and Fishes uh, highlighted is that he's seeing a big influx over there. Um, so there are certain segments of the population that I don't think are accurate, can't ever be fully totally. captured with just numbers. Um, and so that's why stories um, from people like him and others in our community are so important. Yeah, thank you. Billy, is there any last thing you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, I just, just to, I guess, add or, or to, to talk about is the... Um, I think the importance of community organizing, and we've all, we're all, all four of us in this room really are community organizers um, and do a lot of community organizing. And I think it's important, you know, we've done, I think we've done a lot of work, um, particularly with the New Haven Food Policy Council, on bringing all the, all the people and all the voices in that we can. And I think um, Kim's done an enormous amount of work as she's, you know, just described about um, bringing people in through the Witnesses to Hunger program. Um, and I think through a lot of the organizing work we do on food and across issues, bringing people um, from the Latino and Hispanic community in that maybe haven't been part of the conversation mm -hmm. so that we're sure that we're representing that community or that community feels part of our coalition. So it's, I should say that more, that we're a group of people that are bringing in people across the coalition, that there's no real, you know, hierarchical structure mm -hmm. in that way. It's really an organizing effort that the more people we can bring in and have their voices be heard so we can get together to figure out, um, you know, how to crack the nut of food insecurity in the mm -hmm. city. Um, that's the way that we've done it. And so I think we're going to continue to do that work to reach out through all the different networks we have to try to make sure that as many voices are in the room and that our sort of agenda is shaped by what's really happening on the ground versus a sort of preconceived notion of how we're going to get to this. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you all very much. I will put up information on thetableunderground.com so people can read the report. They can link up with each of you and Witnesses to Hunger, the Food Policy Council, and then any other resources you want to provide about ways for people to get involved and get active on summer meals or any other any other issue. Thank you all so much. Thanks, Thanks for you, having us, Tegan. Thanks for listening to The Table Underground. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you like what you hear or see, please share with your friends. This is 103.5 WNHH Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut.